Welcome back to the Full Cat with Bruce Dobigan. I'm Bruce Dobigan, and this is where curiosity leads me. If you enjoy these podcasts, do go to iTunes and look under Not the Public Podcast and subscribe. We're also available on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. In an earlier episode of The Full Count, author and social critic Heather McDonald told us about the falsehoods behind the Black Lives Matter propaganda. Heather described how cops were being blamed in the media for targeting blacks, even though they ignore murder rates among black teenagers that are 10 times the combined rate of whites and Latino teenagers. In her City Journal column, she's pointed out that in 2016, just 16 unarmed blacks in a population of 41 million were killed by cops. She's shown how a 20-year decline in violent crime was reversed in 2015, coincidental with the Obama administration's embrace of the Black Lives Matter agenda that blames cops. Needless to say, such candor has attracted the attention of the extreme left that tries to ban such heresies. Students at Claremont College called her a fascist, a white supremacist, a war hawk, a transphobe, a queerphobe, a classist, and ignorant of the interlocking systems of domination that produce the lethal conditions under which oppressed people are forced to live with. Whew, take a breath there. The Atlantic Magazine, meanwhile, wrote, If you believe that the criminal justice system is racially biased, you need to know Heather MacDonald. She'll mess with your mind and make you either up your political cultural game or admit you were wrong. The pushback against this courageous researcher with real data is why we always enjoy having her here on The Full Count. Welcome back, Heather. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Bruce. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Now, you, you've written that in 2013 was when we reached critical mass in what has become the dominant ideology at universities for the past two decades, victimology, particularly racial victimology. Universities today are dedicated to the proposition that American institutions, including universities themselves, create literally a threatening environment of oppression for people of color. Why did that happen? Boy, that's the million-dollar question. Uh, there's so many possible explanations. It's something that has been brewing for a long time, starting in the 1960s, when you had the rise of radical black politics on campus. The 1980s saw the rise of uh, radical feminism on campus. Both movements took square aim at the canon at the the wonderful books and works of Western civilization that it is the privilege of, of college students to read. And instead, these movements, whether it's the, the race politics or gender politics, put forth the preposterous idea that you can only read books that match your own gonads and melanin and that students should approach the great works of the past with resentment, hostility, and hatred on the theory that somehow they oppress them to be read. Uh, this then, the, the multiculturalism of the 1980s, which was aimed at the curriculum, then metastasized and took on the college environment itself to argue, again, preposterously, that to be a student on an American campus, if you get to check off an ever-growing number of victim boxes, is to be an endangered species. One of the reasons why this grew up is because there's a codependency between an, a growing diversity bureaucracy 
that is costing taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars a year to support these vice chancellors of equity, diversity, inclusion, the deans of diversity. There is a codependency between this diversity bureaucracy and delusional narcissistic students who act out little psychodramas of oppression before an appreciative audience of diversity bureaucrats whose jobs and the, and the expansion of these sinecures depends on this ludicrous conceit that students of color or females on college campuses today are under literal threat of their lives. I'm old enough to remember the 1960s and remember similar sort of talk on campuses. I think, I think the thing that distinguishes this movement is that somehow they managed to jump the tracks and get the media on side. I think the media back in the 60s and 70s was a little bit skeptical. Uh, the, I think one of the changes this time would seem to me that the media, media is appreciative of this message and is fully receiving of this kind of message and has then turned around and put that out uh, for, for broadcast purposes. Well, Bruce, you're absolutely right. But the, the additional uh, difference, for sure, uh, the media, which is largely a product of the left-wing academy that were perhaps participating in some of the extraordinary violence of the 1960s against campus administrations, against buildings, against students they disagreed with. So they, they're the product of this left-wing academy. But the other difference is on campuses themselves, the entire administration, more or less, is on board with the diversity ideology. As I say, there's now this extraordinarily costly bureaucracy in the student services departments and then separate, even within, say, science departments, they have their own diversity bureaucrats. UCLA, the University of California at Los Angeles engineering department now has its own diversity dean to hound the faculty hiring committees beyond what how they're already being hounded by UCLA's nearly half a million dollar a year vice chancellor of equity and diversity to hire females regardless of whether those are the most qualified candidates. So you have now the press backing up this ludicrous conceit that colleges are racist and sexist, and you have college presidents themselves inevitably kowtowing to these ridiculous protesters, announcing penance, announcing reparations, announcing an expansion of the diversity bureaucracy. So there's no room left for common sense and for the pursuit of serious learning. It also seems like, in addition to the media, that corporate America is now being intimidated by this particular movement. We, we, we saw a lot of this in the follow-up to the Parkland incident, where corporations were you know, basically intimidated by the leftist message and, and are now running as fast as they can away from a, a lot of their traditional allies. Absolutely. That's an excellent point, Bruce. It's not, and it wasn't just Parkland. Look at all the caving, the corporate America, when a few states, North Carolina, Texas, I believe, tried to say that actually it is not in the interest of young girls to have boys with their full complement of male genitalia use girls' locker rooms or bathrooms against the trans lobby 
that is engaged in a war on childhood innocence. And you had all of corporate America rising up and declaring boycotts of these states. Why is that happening? That's because the human resources departments of corporations are basically mirror images of the diversity bureaucrats on campus. And because corporations are terrified of media criticism and, you know, they're, they are themselves uh, putting up hiring by race and gender. To be perfectly honest, Bruce, when I get a proxy uh, ballot for a mutual fund uh, that I own, I will vote against every female who's on that ballot for the board of directors, not because I think that females are incapable of serving as boards uh, on the board of, of directors of a corporation, but because I know that corporations are desperate to increase the diversity of their boards, regardless of merit. And so I'm simply not willing to trust that that female who's been nominated is actually nominated because of merit rather than to fill a quota. Yeah, it's a great irony when I hear from any minority group these days saying that it's the oppression, the terrible oppression. I said, have you tried to apply for a job in the government and in universities lately? It's a great time to be a minority. I mean, that's that's all they want to hire. It's kind of a contradiction. Uh, President Trump stunned Hillary Clinton during the election de debate when he said he had no use for diversity and wanted a merit-backed system. Has he been able to make any incursions in this? I think he has. And recently there was a huge furor over statements attributed to the Secretary of the Interior, Ryan Zinke, who was reported by CNN for saying, you know, I'm not going after diversity in my I'm sick of this in my in the Interior Department. I'm hiring by merit and excellence. And of course, he was quoted as as adding in the usual proviso, and that's a way to provide diversity. You know, so he's having it both ways. Right. Uh, now, Zinkit subsequently denied making those statements, but I hope he did make them, and I hope that uh, he he's actually following through, and that every other cabinet ministry is following through and and hiring colorblind and genderblind based only on somebody's abilities. If that results in a department that is all black, so be it. If it results in a department that is all white, so be it. The only thing that matters to taxpayers that should matter is whether they are getting the best government administrators for their money. You're listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest this episode is author and criminology expert Heather McDonald, who is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor, editor uh, to the City Journal. We talked last time about the Ferguson effect on policing, and I mentioned it in the intro. Can, can you quantify the change since 2015, which has shown the statistics going the other direction? Well, we still don't have the full data on 2017 because it takes uh, the FBI quite long to compile all the crime reports from across the country. But 2015 and 2016 uh, were the largest two-year consecutive increases in homicide in ha half a century. Uh, you had about a 20% increase in the nation's homicide rate over those two years. And the victims have been overwhelmingly black. There were nearly 3,000 more black males who were killed in 2015 and 2016 
compared to what the rate would have been had the numbers stayed at the 2014 levels. Uh, you know, blacks are oh, there are over half of all homicide victims, even though they're only 13 percent of the nation's population. So when Trump called out the carnage in American cities, he was absolutely right to do so. The irony, of course, is that because the and the carnage is falling overwhelmingly uh, in black neighborhoods. And the irony was that he's called a racist for doing so. Hmm. Um, the, the statistics that I think I, I read in your column, you were talking about 2016 was, and I think these were FBI statistics is, is, is the number that, uh, the unarmed blacks that were killed by police in 2016 is like under 20 people, 16, 16 unarmed black males. And when you go into the, uh, background of those incidents, just as in 2015, uh, you find people who were trying to grab an officer's gun, who were violently resisting. So if they were unarmed, in many cases, it wasn't for lack of trying. Anybody who tries to grab an officer's gun is put that officer on notice that he intends to kill him. Uh, so that's 16 unarmed black males, about the same number of unarmed white males, out of a black male population in this country of, I think, 11 million uh, we have about 675,000 police officers nationwide. So the idea that there is an epidemic of police shootings of black males, leaving aside what's the usual epithet, which is racially biased police shootings of black males, I mean, that's ridiculous. But even to say there's somehow an epidemic, leaving out the racism part, is ridiculous. Mm. The yeah, epidemic well, that's going on is is criminal homicide in black communities. And there has never once been a Black Lives Matter protest when a young child is gunned down in a drive-by shooting. Yeah. The, the 16 seems like a large number because every time there is one, cable news networks and the, the newspapers devote uh, an extraordinary amount of attention to them, which, as you point out, they, they never do in Chicago. I, I just want to finish up before, uh, before I let you go. Talking, We mentioned Parkland a little bit earlier. Uh, you've written a, about the new data on classroom discipline, teacher bias, and racial disparities in school suspensions. What's happened to, to discipline in American public schools? I, explain what happened in terms of uh, the, the quotas that were basically put on security people. Well, uh, the Obama administration picked up on a growing trend in academia, as usual, that argued that uh, the racial disparities in school discipline, which are real, uh, black students are suspended and expelled at higher rates than white students, uh, the academics and the Obama administration argued that those racial disparities are the result of teacher and principal bias. They completely uh, refused to consider, I mean, it was not even within their universe to think about uh, whether those disparities in student discipline were the result of differences in student behavior. That type of inquiry is absolutely taboo uh, in the mainstream media and in the academia and in uh, liberal governments. And so they, the Obama administration sent out a directive to schools saying that if you have disparate disciplinary numbers, 
you're at risk of a lawsuit from the Justice Department or the Education Department, and you might lose your federal education funding, which of course is a huge source of money. Yeah. Uh, and so as a result, many, stu many schools have uh, stopped out-of-school suspensions and cut way back on in-school discipline. They've, they've stopped working with school police uh, and all of this effort, and, and the result has been violence in the schools, violence directed at teachers. Teachers are getting beaten up, their heads beaten into pavement uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, by a, a students who said, well, we can't be suspended. Uh, the premise of this effort to squelch student discipline is completely bogus. The fact of the matter is, is that black students do act up more than white students. They, the, the teen male homicide rate for blacks, for males between the ages of 14 and 17, black males between the ages of 14 and 17 commit homicide at 10 times the rate of white and Hispanic male teens of the same ages combined. Mm. That's a enormous disparity. The idea that the lack of socialization that produces that homicide disparity is not showing up in class is preposterous. The wilding incidents that we've seen, the, the flash mobs, the knockout game of black teens coming up and knocking out white people, strangers, uh, these are all products of the breakdown of the black family. Kids are not getting socialized to be able to restrain their, their impulses, to control their anger. It shows up in juvenile crime, and it shows up in the classroom, as any teacher is going to tell you. Mm -hmm. And so as a result, you're having those good black students who want to learn and are come to class ready to learn, their classrooms are increasingly chaotic. Our Trump's education secretary, Betsy DeVos, is now considering whether to repeal the Obama directive that penalized schools for disparate rates of discipline. It's hard to predict which way she's going. At, it was reported that in a meeting on this topic, she actually said that there is a problem of racism in the in this uh, nation's schools, that is a very bad sign. It is ridiculous for her to give any support to that idea. There's not a more liberal profession in the country than teachers. Ed school is one long marinade in white privilege theory, in multiculturalism, in social justice. Teachers are not acting out of racial animus when they impose justified discipline on their students. Yeah. You get you get this this contradiction where the where the uh, teachers unions are slavish to the Democrats of, of, of Barack Obama in terms of their donations. I think one of the top 
five, top seven uh, donors to the last election cycle is the teachers union. And of course, they're the ones who are bearing the brunt of all this. Uh, they're, they're certainly not voting their own interests when they, when they follow the Democrats. I've only got a couple of minutes here, so I just wanted to follow up because I'm fascinated to hear your take on the Parkland uh, tragedy. The gun debate, hi, hi, uh, debate hijacked the media, but the truth seems to have been a failure of many layers of policing here. What went wrong? What about the security? Well, we talked about security in the schools. What went wrong and how does this sheriff keep his job? Ha. Yes, I, I don't know how he keeps his job, uh, but you had a school, well, Broward County, that uh, had a commissioner that was the leader in this effort to cut back on school discipline, and he w was an advisor to Education Secretary Arne Duncan under Obama. Uh, and so you had a radical drop in school discipline, the in introduction of these usually somewhat preposterous new agey type alternatives to traditional discipline like healing circles and restorative <laughs> justice. Uh, and so Nicholas Cruz, uh, while he's not black, the, the stigma against discipline sort of applied across the board. So he had records of incidents of, of insubordination and violence on campus that in the pre-Obama era and the pre-Broward uh, County, uh, you know, anti-discipline era would have brought him to the attention of the school police. And he, he could have had a record that would have alerted, that would have been brought up in the, in the background check when he went to purchase his arsenal. Uh, but because of this effort to cut back on what is called in, in left-wing academic circles, again, this is a, a complete fiction, the so-called school-to-prison pipeline, uh, Cruz was not identified as a possibly violent troublemaker. Yeah, and the FBI, of course, also had warnings about him. The Broward police had warnings about him. It seems like, a fa you know, before you ever get to the gun debate, it seems to me a, a, an argument about a failure of policing at a number of levels. Uh, as I've said to my friends, uh, you, yeah, you can write some more laws about, about guns, all the uh, laws you want, but if they don't obey the ones that, that you've got in the first place, how can you assess whether they're working or not? Right. Uh, you know, arguably, we have a lot of laws out there, and uh, the... In Enforcement works. We've learned this in New York City under Mayor Giuliani in the 1990s. Policing works. And, uh, you know, we have to be able to act on suspicious behavior and take appropriate measures uh, to try and prevent crime from building up further. Heather, I really appreciate you taking the time today. It's always enlightening. It's, it's information we don't get other places. And I really appreciate you coming on today and, and helping us and that you'll come back sometime in the future. Thank you so much for having me, Bruce. I appreciate it. You've been listening to The Full Count with Bruce Dobigan. Our guest is author and criminology expert Heather McDonald, who is the Thomas W. Smith Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a contributing editor to the City Journal. You can also follow her on her Facebook page. Don't forget to subscribe to The Full Count on all our podcasts at iTunes and on my website, notthepublicbroadcaster.com. You can also access my columns, my podcasts, and my poetry on that same website. Also, I appear three times a week on Sirius XM Radio, Channel 167, Canada Talks. I'm on at noon Eastern Time, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. I'll post our conversations on my website, on Twitter, and on my Facebook page in case you can't hear them the first time around. 
Till next time, this is Bruce Dobrik, and remember, the story isn't complete till it reaches the full count.